Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Friday, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernell Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Alicia Priest, president of the OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. Uh, Well, today we are joined by two very special guests who are much smarter than Alicia and I. Um, We've got Dr. Donna Tayungu, who visited with us uh, at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you. Great. Um, and Dr. Tayongo is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at OU Health Children's Hospital. And we are also joined by Dr. Chris Aston. How are you? I'm keeping well, thank you. Good. He is a research associate professor in pediatrics, also at OU Health. So um, we wanted to visit with you guys about um, some research that you're doing about schools. Can you tell us what you guys are looking into? Sure. We started a school survey um, maybe three weeks after the majority of schools had had opened their doors in Oklahoma back in August. Um, And this was data that we wanted to collect because we were frankly a little nervous that it was going to not be collected because I had reached out to Department of Health and as well as uh, Department of Education and, and and this data was not going to be collected across the state. Yeah, so, yeah. so we didn't want it to get lost, especially, you know, God forbid for the next pandemic, it would be really mm-hmm. nice to know um, all of this data. So we developed a survey um, together to basically ask about number of cases in schools, um, we asked about masks, we asked about sports, we asked about staff and faculty, um, we asked how, if people have changed how they do lunches and how they do PE, oh, and yeah. we asked about social distancing. So it was basically to collect all of this data and then you know, basically provide it back to schools so that if people want to adjust their programs to do what's working for, for yeah. other schools who are able to stay open the longest, um, then they could. And it still only takes five minutes. Yes, oh, the survey only takes five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, uh, what kind of engagement are you guys getting from school districts? Um, we are actually not doing horrendously. We would <laughs> like to do better. Um, I can actually tell you the average numbers. So we have about 1800 schools in the state of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And on average, each week, we get probably about 230, 250 schools responding. Come on, people. We can (laughs) can do do better. better. We We can can do better. better. You know, okay, we're going to get into more of this. I'll just have a brief monologue. But I've been saying we all don't know You know, we all don't know the answer. That's why every school district is doing different things. I mean, you've got, everybody's just doing the best they can and they're approaching it in all these different ways. And like, wouldn't it be great to have a blueprint? So part of that is answering the survey. So monologue. That was part of, well, that was (laughs) part of it because when everything, I mean, back in August, it was was a, there's a lot we didn't know that we know yeah. now, right? And it was a yeah. very scary time kind of thinking about going back to school, yeah. all of the unknown. Right. And everyone really was doing something different and right. trying to do what worked on their own. So exactly. So what do you guys see when you when you get those results back? Like what are you tracking or what are you what are your hypotheses? 
So, which, which question? I don't know. <laughs> You're the scientists. Answer whichever one you want. Um, so I can, t- I can tell you that even though it sounds like the number of responses we're getting back is low, and it is low compared, um, but in general for a survey, the the consistency is kind of what's the most important. Yeah. Um, and across the state, we have had, I mean, except for one county, which county is that that hasn't responded at all? Uh, and we can call them out on the podcast. <laughs> so just north, north uh, east of Woodward, it's right on the border. Of- I don't know which one that one is. Okay, Texas. well, we're coming for you. Okay. Which one? Is it Texas County? Mm. I'll have to pull up a map of Oklahoma to see exactly which county it is. But m- the whole point is that we have had at least one response from every single county across the state. So that's, that's actually awesome. very good. It's um, it's representative of the entire state is basically the point of this, what, what I'm trying to get across. As far as people who have consistently responded, right, that gets lower and lower, but we've got quite a bit of response from, you know, our major areas like Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And then as you stretch out from Oklahoma City, we have pretty good response rate, just kind of out um, in the rural areas of the state, we, we need more participation so that we can have the data really reflect the entire state, not yeah. just kind of Tulsa, Oklahoma City areas. Right. More rural data. Exactly. And then the other thing Dr. Aston actually set up was, which is, I think, very important, looking at county risk versus those schools that are responding, the actual risk level that those schools are in. So we can see that when the schools are responding to the survey, if they are in red, orange two, orange one, yellow or green, that's pretty important for what's going on in the community versus what the school, what school situation is. And it's very reflective. So that's actually a good thing that the community risk is reflecting what those schools are responding to us. Did I say, does that make sense? What I just said, like when when they go up in community spread and risk schools are responding. Is that what you mean? No, no. Okay. Bad summary. (laughs) (laughs) So, so the idea is uh, you expect to see more cases uh, in the schools when you have more cases in the community. Got it. And part of the question that we were interested in was, part of the concern was that schools would be a, a spreading ground hmm. for cases yeah. going out in the community. And one of our things that we have found is it actually seems to be the other way around. What? The schools almost seem to be a safety area Really, and very and yeah. what come and it's the community outside that then drives what's happening inside the schools rather than the other way around. But what we did was we broke up the schools into what level their current county was mm. in terms of risk. So you've heard of the green, yellow, orange one, orange two, red levels. Mm-hmm. So we have them broken out by those different levels and can say, okay, if your background county is in red, this is what's happening. If your background county is in yellow, Mm -hmm. this is what's happening. And we actually do see uh, differences that would definitely change how you respond in the schools according to what the background risk level is. Right. So 
give give an example of that. Okay, so if you live in a an area where the level of community spread is considered high risk, mm. we know that for students in red in those red school zones, there are more cases per thousand students who go to full-time in-person school than those who do that hybrid learning model, the AB kind of schedule. Right. Versus if your county is green, yellow, or orange one, in-person school actually appears to kind of be protective where the cases and students are much lower than if the county is in red. Wow. As compared, so the cases, if you're going to full-time in-person school are lower in students than if you do that hybrid model. Wow. So is that, I mean, did you guys expect that? That's surprising to no. me. No. Yeah, that's surprising <laughs> no. to me. And, and is it because students aren't getting tested because they're asymptomatic or? So that's a great question. There are a lot of, there are gonna be a lot of caveats and questions. And, and that was actually brought up when we talk about pre-K through six because pre-K through six, and this is kind of, this has matched international and national data, those students just tend to get the virus less and transmit it amongst themselves less when they get it. Um, but what has, what has, what our research has actually shown us is that teachers who are teaching in pre-K through six are also testing lower for the virus in the majority of cases. Actually, once you get into red, <laughs> that all changes once your community level of spread gets to red, but. The other but thing yeah. is that our numbers, when it's, it's not so much the, when we're testing as it's the number of cases we're actually getting. We're actually doing cases, not people are in quarantine or anything like that. So right. these are actually people who have tested positive for COVID which is probably an under, underestimate of how many are out there. Exactly. Well, definitely in children, right? Because like you said, if they're asymptomatic, they may not even get tested. Um, but, but yeah. You know, one of the, the questions that is in my mind about, you know, our classroom environment, it, where if a school has like a masking policy, you can, you can say you've got to have a mask to come into class. You know, it's AB, so we're going to limit social or limit, social interaction have better social distancing it's different it feels different in my mind than like going to target where it's just like probably people are wearing a mask if there's a rule in town maybe not maybe they don't have a sense of sense of social bubbles um is is does it matter does the school environment rules do those are those making a difference so yes so yes, absolutely. <laughs> so the mit <laughs> mitigation strategies that schools put in place are extremely important, right, to keep the, the spread of the virus low. So masking, even we, we asked about social distancing. Social distancing clearly shows that if schools are making the attempt to keep students apart from each other, there are less cases in those, in those instances. Um, all of it, social distancing, washing your hands, mm -hmm. you know, even teaching kids to sanitize their desks and making plans for lunches and, and doing things safely. Yeah, it's, 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 it is important. If only someone had brought that up. We brought it up. We did. We brought <laughs> it up. There you go. So why, um, 
you know, there are so many facets. I mean, there's just so much we don't know. I mean, many things everybody's looking at, but like, why did you guys choose to look at school environments? Why was education something that you, I mean, that's the, the crux of what you're looking at. Why schools? Well, so we are, I am actually a pediatrician. Chris is here with us in pediatrics. And so at the time when this was coming out, we had started noticing this syndrome, multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children secondary to COVID. Have you all heard of that? Mm-hmm. Right? So well, we here, well, for folks who might not have, go ahead and explain it. So it's basically a syndrome that occurs in children typically, well, actually now with all the new data, we do know that there is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in adults as well. But when it first presented, we, we know that about two to six weeks, two to eight weeks after having had COVID, even if you were asymptomatic and didn't know it, didn't know that you had the virus, you can present with what a Kawasaki type picture um, with rash, um, fever, very high fevers. They can have cardiac problems. The reason it's called multi-system inflammatory is because you have at least two of your major systems involved. So we were having some of these children present to the hospital with this. Oh, so um, scary. With this scary syndrome and yeah. even the, 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 I would say sister syndrome is Kawasaki. The, this was even more scary because the cardiac manifestations would present way earlier. So these children, if you don't get them on the right antibiotics, not antibiotics, but you don't get them on the right drugs um, early enough, then they can have cardiac damage. And so we were about to go back into school. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, the question in my mind was, are we going to be seeing more of this? How are we going to know how many children are even being exposed to the virus and different things like that in schools? And so we really wanted to do this to make sure that we are looking at from the school side, kind of what's going on. Then it's kind of evolved into very interesting. I mean, we haven't even started talking about the staff yet, (laughs) but it's evolved into very interesting um, findings. Shall, shall we tell them about some of the staff findings? Yes, please. Oh, we would love to. We just did a, we just did a, um, a survey of our members and, um, and 12% of the respondents have had COVID. And we had 3,500 um, staff members respond. Mm-hmm. All over the state. It was higher, it's higher than the state's rate. Right. That's about surprising to me. I think that's like the physician rate is around 12%. Ah. Um, Anyway, let me tell you what we're finding with our staff. So our data is showing that staff are infected 10 times as often as children are. Okay, so... So then they're older, so you're kind of expecting... Right, we expect it. Okay. Right. But still like just... Right. But that's a lot. That's a lot to to take in there. But what is very interesting is, as I was talking to you earlier about the green, yellow, and orange kind of being protective for in person, that that trend actually holds true for staff. So the really? least, yes. And when you look at hmm. in person versus hybrid versus virtual the least number of cases for staff were in in in-person class as long as you were orange one, yellow, or green. Even in orange two, 
in person. It's even, it's even on orange too. It's red. It's not until you get to red that the in-person becomes a risky proposition for staff. Exactly. Yeah. And so what was extremely surprising that I was not expecting to see was what we found with virtual. In almost every instance, when it comes to staff, virtual had the most number of cases. What? Per thousand. Yeah. So what, what we think is that maybe... <laughs> <laughs> well, if teachers are at school, so the majority of teachers from, from, the, from the survey respondents, it looks mm -hmm. like the majority of teachers are, even when they're virtual, they're coming to school. Yeah. But if they are being more lax at school because the students aren't there, mm -hmm. or if, like in the hospital, one of our major transmission areas is lunchrooms or shared offices where people aren't masking and they're sharing, um, or if they're being more lax at home because they think they're virtual and they're not gonna get infected at school and they're getting, they're actually getting infected outside in the community. Um, wow. Those are some of the theories. I know it was very surprising to us That's too. Very surprising. Yeah. Now the, yeah. the caveat, the usual caveat I like to, I, you know, Donna's used to this. Um, there's, yes, the statistics is suggesting that virtual is high. So in general, it is high and it's not as safe as people are, are, are thinking. Mm. But that does not say that individuals can go to a virtual setting and, and be very cautious, very safe, and be very safe under a virtual setting. Right. But it, that's, the, that's the thing. We're, we're, we're thinking that people are falling into a, a laxity Mm. Uh, with oh I'm virtual I don't have the kids around I I can be less cautious mm -hmm. and it's really just just it's 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 not good situation that was one of the findings that we found uh, I mean when we first saw it we we, we after we week one we were like questions. no this can't <laughs> no, be after week two we were like no 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 but now it's like week thirteen and it's like still holding true and it's getting worse <laughs> like it's wow. like okay this is this is true yeah and and one thing that i think about is when when we transition to virtual it's because we're in the red category so there's more community spread so you know it correlation versus causation versus you know, what are all the factors that, that are affecting it? it? Right. So, I mean, that's the thing. We can't really tell you why it's happening, mm. but we can tell you it is happening. And people are thinking that they're going to be safe under a virtual scheme, and it just doesn't follow. We it's, don't know exactly why. It's safe yeah. if you make it safe. It, it's safe if you practice all the the things that... Yeah, but I mean that we're supposed to be practicing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but Alicia, right. what you said, I can totally see myself doing something like that. Not, not really. Oh, it's my colleague, and I haven't seen you this year, and you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, it is. Yeah. It's like it, it's just a kind of a reminder that we need to not let our guard down. I yeah. mean, we're literally right on the cusp of this being over with the vaccines coming yeah. around, you know, like we yeah. just need to really keep up our guard and not continue spreading this virus if we can help it. So can we disaggregate the data to see from those school, 
when they're virtual, if they're having the um, educators come in versus they get to stay at home? So we had that question come up a few meetings ago. So Chris did that. And so how we separated that data is we asked people when they're virtual, do they mostly, are they mostly on site for classes? Meaning is that 90% or more on site? And 60, almost 60% was the response. So over half are actually on site. Okay. And, and that's, and then whenever they're mostly at home for classes, 90% or more mostly at home, that's about 25%. Now, we haven't gotten deeper into that data to say those who are at school, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but that's our, that was one of our next steps to say that those who are mostly on site have this many infections and those who are mostly at home have this many infections. That's, that's one of our next steps. Next step. Okay. Man. I just need to invent time. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, when you guys talk about all these different factors and there is so much to dive into in so many different ways that people are, are solving this issue. I am so grateful that you guys are keeping track of this because Oklahoma doesn't really have a centralized, I mean, you're the ones doing it. It's you guys. So uh, thank you very much. <laughs> like, that's no one, nice. else, Thanks, no one else is really doing this, but it's so important. Even I know that we're on the, like you said, we are on the cusp and I'm so hopeful, but, <laughs> but like, we want to get the next, however many months, right. You know, we want to make, everybody wants to make the safest choices that they can. And like, even if it's just for six more months or whatever it is, like to have that information is going to be so helpful and so critical for decision makers. Absolutely. And every time we meet with a school board or a superintendent, we always reiterate that, you know, you guys are amazing and we're so lucky we don't have your job. I mean, can you imagine like the, the parents on this side, the teachers on this side, and you want to protect everyone and do the best for everyone. It's just so many hard decisions to make. So hopefully, hopefully some of the data that we're collecting is going to be able to help um, make some of those difficult decisions. That's the goal. Yeah. And, and then we'll have it to look at if this ever, if anything like this ever happens again and we're having to go through it instead of, you know, having to make it up on the fly mm -hmm. and, and hope that we're, you know, that we're all doing the right thing. Yeah. So I just want to say it better be a hundred years before something like this happens. I can't <laughs> preach it. You preach it. Yeah. I'm, tired. I'm going to New Zealand. That's it. New Zealand, we need to all move to the island that has banished the COVID, yes. <laughs> For sure. This is all just so fascinating and my mind is going 100 miles an hour thinking of all the things and all the possibilities. And, and I think that, uh, uh, like Carrie said, we can't thank you enough for the work that you do to help us make good decisions to keep kids safe Yes. in school when they're, you know, when they're with us. It just, you know, uh, it, it means the world because we have a responsibility to keep the kids safe, but we also have a responsibility to keep our ourselves, our staff safe. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, uh, good science and medical knowledge should be driving those policy decisions. Yes. And, um, and this will be so helpful in that. So before we, before we let you guys go, um, can you talk, and 
I guess this is a question really for either one of you. What, um, what is it about, what about school is important for kids' health? Why is school important? I mean, I know that we're doing it differently and everybody's doing it, you know, 15 ways, but why is that a children's health issue? Chris, do you want me to take this one? I think you'd better. <laughs> <laughs> Since according to the Washington Post, I'm not a real doctor. So <laughs> I call you Dr. Aston, that's fine. <laughs> We all appreciate that you are a real doctor, Chris. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's interesting is when I was pulling together all the literature to look and see if anyone has done this, something like this across the state, even across the world, it, it's not exactly like what we've done. Most of the data is on the importance of schools. Mm mental health for our children, having children be able to see each other, learning from the mistakes of other children, being able to just play on the playground. Yes. So mental health is huge. Yes. We can't overlook nutrition. Like some children have the majority and the bulk of what they eat maybe coming from schools. That is a fact. Um, we can't overlook that some children are abused at home. And school is where that's found out. Yep. And so when you have everyone in a virtual setting because of a pandemic, a lot of kids may be getting missed or slipped through the cracks because mm -hmm. of that situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's, <sighs> we have all just taken for granted so much in life. Who would have thought yeah. we would, not be able to go to school. Yeah. Know? I think yeah. every single pediatrician, every medical person, every person in general understands the importance of school, not only for students, not only for teachers. I mean, just for parents, people don't want to talk about school being the place so parents can go to work, but it is. It is a place where kids can go to learn, grow, eat, be with their friends, and their parents can go to work knowing that their children are in a safe place, learning and growing and eating and being with their friends. And right. I think many parents have learned that, uh, that there's a lot happening in math class that they have to tutor in and... <laughs> When was the last time that you had to multiply fractions? I mean, not you, Dr. Aston. Yeah. You're doing that probably. <laughs> He's like, but like on the daily. <laughs> yeah. For fun. Yeah. But, I admit there uh, was a time when my mother just said, no more. I, I can't. I can't. No, I can't. <laughs> and For she, me, that was when my daughter was in fourth grade. But I digress. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I hope one thing that comes out of this is how much we really value our teachers, even our administrators, all the people who are making all these hard decisions for everyone. Like we've all, I, I, we've all taken so much for granted, but yeah, we, we should never do that again. I mean, I can't wait to just go sit in a movie theater and oh my not God. worry that someone coughed next to me or something. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm, I would line up to get the shot right now and spend the night in a line somewhere. Like I've never done that for a concert ticket or <laughs> a video game for a telephone, but I would go and camp out in a line to get a vaccine right now. Uh, if, if there were enough, uh, available. So, um, it's a matter of time. And I heard that, um, the governor is trying to prioritize teachers 
earlier, actually. I mean, I don't know if that's official yet, but I just heard that on the news the other fingers day. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Yes. We have been asked and we are waiting for that um, that bump as well. I hope, you know, uh, to, to get to get everything back to some normalcy for our kids yeah. Um, yeah. when it's safe, right? Yeah. Which uh, brings us full circle back to your research and what is your timeline for, for publishing? So we do wanna get this first semester, first sem I mean, the semester's not over yet, but we wanna get this first chunk of data out so everyone can look at it and read it and see it. And our goal, I set for us, Chris, is early January. Is <laughs> is early January, so I am working ferociously to try to type it all out where it would where it makes some sense, um, and so and then we will continue the survey. So if we can get even more participation for the second half, because it'll be very the data will just keep getting interesting after we all get vaccinated. You know, hopefully yeah, the true. surge, yeah. right? The surge will kind of wane off and we'll go back into normal existence, hopefully before the end of next semester. Um, and so then we will publish the results again, kind of at the end, like maybe early summer. I know what you're saying about that the, the, the data will continue to be interesting, but I would like it to be interesting for just like maybe a short amount of time. Can it be interesting just like I maybe a few months as opposed to like interesting for the next like two years? Yeah. So fingers crossed that it's only interesting for a little while. <laughs> Just a little, yes. You know, they have even started um, enrolling PD, like uh, children in vaccine trials now. So teachers will be vaccinated and then hopefully soon enough we'll be able to get all of our kids vaccinated and we will be moving into the world of back to normal. Yes. Let's do it. In the meantime, mask, social distance, keep washing your hands. Yes. Amen, sister. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for the time because you are both incredibly busy because as you just told us all about, you have got stuff to do. So we have deadlines to do it in. Yes. We appreciate your time and we appreciate your work. It is, it's going to make a big difference for kids in our state. So thank you for what you're doing. You're so welcome. great to meet with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are so excited today to visit with our friends from Hearts for Hearing. Uh, we have two guests with us. We've got Darcy Stowe, a speech language pathologist and listening and spoken language specialist. Darcy, how are you? Great. How are you guys? Good. Good. We're also joined by Dr. Jace Wolf, who's the chief of audiology and research for Hearts for Hearing. How are you, Jace? I, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I come from a whole family of educators, and so I appreciate so much what you guys are doing and have a huge heart for education in Oklahoma, so it's great to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, for folks who might not be familiar, um, big picture, Darcy, tell us what Hearts for Hearing does. Yes, Hearts for Hearing is a speech and hearing clinic in Oklahoma. We have multiple locations across the state, and we serve children and adults with hearing loss, all the way from infants to um, the oldest of the old, and we help to uh, meet hearing health needs and help um, children and adults with hearing loss to listen for a lifetime. We um, provide lots of support services for children with hearing loss, which I think is what we will focus in on today. 
So how important is it for, um, for kiddos to have access to hearing assistive devices as early as possible? Why is it better to have, uh, to get a kid help in first grade versus second grade or middle school yeah. as opposed to high school? Great question. Um, we know from what we know about the brain and what we know about child development, we know that any kid has the best chance at maximizing their potential if we start as early as possible. Mm -hmm. So for children with hearing loss, um, if we have uh, the ability to have, to know about their hearing loss early, potentially through their newborn hearing screening, and to have the best, most appropriate hearing technology, as well as access to quality early intervention through a pediatric audiologist and a listening and spoken language specialist, those are the kids that um, are really able to maximize their listening um, and spoken language and academic potential from the beginning. Jace, do you have more to add to that? I think you you summarized it perfectly. Um, we do know just with the technologies and the services that we have available today, that the sky is truly the limit for children with hearing loss. And I've been at this for a while, over 20 years, and that was not the case when I started. Many of the children um, who I served, they mm -hmm. were born uh, with severe to profound hearing loss, and we just did not have the technologies to give them access to sound and to stimulate the areas of their brain that are really necessary to, to be stimulated, to learn to listen and talk. But today, every child born with hearing loss in Oklahoma has the opportunity to listen and talk if they have access to the types of services that we provide at Hearts for Hearing. It's a really exciting time. I mean, that's mind blowing. Like, yeah. I mean, that is that was not the case pretty recently. Yeah. Oh, you're exactly right. Um, it was heartbreaking when I started. I worked with a, a large number of children who um, had significant hearing loss, um, and I um, actually. Um, led an effort to raise money to get hearing aids for those children, mm -hmm. um, but um, they had too much hearing loss to really benefit from the hearing aids. We just couldn't mm -hmm. get hearing aids that were powerful enough to access the areas of their brain that respond to, to listening and to mm -hmm. help develop spoken language. But with cochlear implants today, yeah. um, we can bypass the part of the ear that is typically not working um, when you have a severe to profound hearing loss. And you would be blown away. Some of our children who have cochlear implants today, their listening and spoken language skills are on par or better than their mm -hmm. peers with typical hearing. And they set the curve in their classroom. Mm -hmm. They have excellent um, academic outcomes. One of our first children who received a cochlear implant um, in Oklahoma is actually in his second year in medical school at the University wow. of Oklahoma now. That's awesome. And we have another child who's, um, I think he scored a perfect score on the, the, the reading section of the ACT and I think scored a 34 or 35 overall and has a full ride wow. at OU now. So truly the sky is the limit yeah. if, we, if we leverage the technologies and services that are available. That's amazing. I taught a um, a student Spanish. That's that's what I was. I taught Spanish middle school, and um, and he uh, uh, we had to figure out ways that we could teach him language acquisition without the ability to truly hear. In the middle of the year, he got a cochlear implant. So cycle on to the next year coming in. He he just flourished. Yeah. with um with language ad adaptation and um and it was amazing to see you know he was an amazing student before and then when he could put sound to um to what he was doing in class mm -hmm. I, I i was just blown away yeah. blown away 
Well, Dr. Wolf, what are the signs a parent should look for uh, with, with, especially with the littles uh, who might have a hearing issue? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll actually turn this over to Darcy to start um, because she works a lot with language development and that's one of the areas where we see some of the shortcomings at first. So Darcy, you wanna start with that? Sure. Early on, if we don't know that a child has a hearing loss, we might see some behaviors or some signs that are red flags that would cause a teacher or a parent to want to seek a hearing evaluation. And these things would include things like a late talker, a child who is somewhat disengaged or removed, um, a child who has difficulty following directions or has challenges listening in a noisy environment, or a kiddo who is hard to understand. Hmm. They talk, but we really aren't sure what they're saying. Yeah. And I think when in doubt, have hearing checked. Yes. And Jace, do you have a few more examples for us on that? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, on top of just delays in language development or the ability to be able to speak clearly um, at an early age, um, we, we oftentimes see children who, um, when they listen to music or watch a video um, and they have earphones or with their parents' phone or iPad, they'll turn the volume up really loud, which is maybe an obvious sign that you might expect. Um, but when they're watching tele television in the living room, they'll, they'll ask for the volume to be louder or they'll sit really close to the television. Um, if you see a child whose behavior really deteriorates in noisy situations or they really struggle to, to follow directions or to, to follow speech in noisy situations, that can be a, a sign of a high-frequency hearing loss or an inability to hear high-frequency sounds. Um, also, too, if you see a child who struggles to hear in noise or who has a difficult time determining where sounds come from, did it come from the front or the side or the back, that might be a sign of hearing loss in one ear as well. And, and like Darcy said, when, when in doubt, um, we can test a child um, of any age and with any hearing ability um, or any type of, of, of special abilities, we can get an accurate hearing test. Um, so if there's any doubt, um, get your child scheduled for a hearing test and we will be able to give good answers about what their hearing abilities are. So I was I was actually just going to ask if you if you're a, a parent who has a concern, you would like what are the steps? Would you call your family physician? Would you call Hearts for Hearing? Could you what what do you what do you do? What it's are the, the process? What's the process? Great question. Call Hearts for Hearing directly, and we can mm -hmm. get your your child scheduled really quickly. Um, one of the services that we offer um, is that we make certain that. Um, families um, will have no out-of-pocket cost when their child has hearing loss. And so hearing aids are really expensive and oftentimes it comes as a surprise to families if their yeah. children um, um, are diagnosed with hearing loss. And so we make certain that parents aren't out-of-pocket for those costs associated with hearing aids or the services that the child needs as well. Um, we, we take most all commercial insurance companies and we're a Medicaid provider. Um, so cost typically is never a concern to get children access to the services and the technologies that they, that they receive. And we'll work with um, physicians to get referrals as needed so that children can have really timely and expeditious access to the hearing tests or the, the language assessments that they need. Because time is of the essence. Without a doubt, without yeah. a doubt. It's amazing. Um, we, we, we've tested babies and diagnosed hearing loss as early as eight or nine days of age. We've fitted wow. hearing aids on babies when they're two weeks of age. Wow. Um, Oklahoma Medicaid will approve um, 
cochlear implantation as early as six months of age. And the great thing about wow. going early like that is that the children, um, they never have an opportunity to fall behind. And like Darcy sure. said, that first few months and years of life, the brain's like a sponge. And so if we can get in early, mm-hmm. we're on the developmental curve um, where there are never any delays. Um, and children really are indistinguishable from their peers with typical hearing. That's amazing. <laughs> That was that brought up uh, a question about what does that early detection mean for uh, hearing loss as a child develops and and um, starts you know learning how to speak and read and mm-hmm. and 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 then go to school. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. We, we one of our first um, children in Oklahoma who received his cochlear implant at six months of age. When he was 12 months of age, he had several words already. And before he was wow. two years of age, he was speaking in sentences. And so he's going to wow. go to kindergarten at his neighborhood kindergarten, and he's going to thrive with other kids with typical hearing. He'll probably set the curve in his class. Um, and the sky, again, will be the limit for him. Whatever goal or um, whatever aspirations that the family would have for, for, for him, they're all within sight still. Darcy, would you have anything to add on that? Yes, I would just say... Earlier is better, like we've talked about, but yeah. children, um, we know children are unique and they're made up of all abilities and capabilities. And um, we know our Oklahoma schools do such a great job at supporting all children who have additional needs. And mm-hmm. for children who are identified early and everything just kind of fits into place, they um, mainstream can be a goal for them with very minimal support. Um, but we also know that children who haven't had access to early sound or appropriate management may need more support and that looking at each child as an individual is so very important um, because of their capabilities and abilities. Well, before uh, we let you guys go, um, how can how can folks uh, contact you, whether it's to get more information as a, a parent or to support your mission or to donate or help out. Um, how? What can folks do? What's the next step? I would direct them toward our website, heartsforhearing.org, as well as our social media outlets. Um, we try to post there and update there quite often. Um, we are able to support children and families best because of um, fundraising efforts that mm-hmm. happen through our nonprofit. And we um, always welcome people to join on that journey with us, whether it's sharing their stories or sharing their resources. Yes. And we are so grateful to partner with educators in the state of Oklahoma because working with children with hearing loss takes a team. Mm-hmm. And we are a small part of that team, but we um, love being able to join in the team with educators as well. You know, I, as you say that, it makes me think about that, that really they're the same goal of giving kids the best opportunity possible, you know, whatever that exactly. looks like for them. So it's critical work that you guys do, critical work. So we thank you so much for your time. We thank you what you give kiddos and their families uh, very much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And ditto, thanks for all you guys do. And we, we really enjoy partnering with all the, the educators throughout the state of Oklahoma. And welcome to Alicia's Morning Announcements. Do, 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 do. 
uh, I've never seen myself do that. We're on a Zoom call today. And so uh, I'm not enjoying the way I look when I say do, 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 do. Anywho, uh, let's talk surveys. Lots of them going around right now. Uh, the budget survey closes on December 18th. So make sure that you Friday. get your input yeah. on the budget survey. Yes. Uh, we're a membership organization. So we want to hear from our members mm-hmm. where they think um, their dues dollars should be going. And yep. and if we believe that a budget is a moral document, shows where your priorities are, where are our priorities? And so uh, give your input on that. Um, we just finished the pandemic survey and had amazing response. 30, mm-hmm. uh, almost 3,600 people took the survey. Uh, and we are going through and disaggregating that data and we'll have information for you uh, early next week. So watch for a Facebook Live next Monday for yeah. a release of that data. Um, so we have uh, sure. we have a whole big plan. Yep. Yep. Well, Very plan. This this is a little piece that won't shock anybody. In school quarantine is still a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> we checked in and everyone was like, no, thank you. Nope. <laughs> Hard <I guess> not. <laughs> Would you like no. to roll around in COVID? No, not today. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, not today. So, um, yeah, that's gonna be uh I'm looking forward to that on Monday when we yeah. get to talk about those results, like the full shebang. The full shebang. Mm -hmm. So local leaders who may be uh, uh, listening in, if you had a large chunk of members take the test, take the test, take the survey, (laughs) then um, then uh, contact us and let us know. We can pull out data for your local only and and give you that information. So it's going to be really useful. You know, we we do love data and science. And can I say that this is our last podcast of the year oh and it's such a good one it's the end of 2020 and take that stupid year we will have a good podcast with without you 2020 can can joe change the words to that song and say take this year and shove it yeah i don't i don't i think that's probably a copyright issue (laughs) probably probably but hopefully we don't get in trouble for that can i like this has been so much fun this year I love doing this podcast. I think it's super fun. I like just all the different ways that education touches the state and love talking to members and all the amazing things they do inside and outside the classroom. It's just, it's been a fun year. It, of, it has of, been. Of terror, but you know, yeah, this part of this year has been fun. From 10 to 12 on Fridays when we get together and yes. record has been yes. phenomenal. yes. Just that two-hour time slot. <laughs> and um, we will be back uh, in the new year, back in uh, January, and right there on the doorstep of the legislative session. So, But we're going to take a break. And so you guys take a break. Everybody take a break. Everybody take a break. Take a breath, and mm-hmm. let's come back stronger and um, ready to give again Yes, in January. Yes. So um, thank you. We want to say thank you so much to uh, Dr. Christopher Aston, Dr. Donna Tayungu of OU Health uh, for coming on today. Thank you so much to Darcy Stowe and Dr. Jace Wolf of Hearts for Hearing for also joining us. 
and thank yes and thank you for listening to fried okra the public education podcast for oklahomans we will catch you back in january and we will miss you desperately until then i'm carrie coppernall jacobs with the oklahoma education association and i'm alicia priest president of the oea please remember to subscribe rate and review fried okra on apple podcasts you can also contact us at fried okra podcast at gmail.com we hope you will join us again next year Until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.